0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Kat and as ever I'm joined by my co-hosts Jen and Dom. Today we're going to be talking about mass career customization. We've got a brilliant guest who I was introduced to last summer, summer of 21, at an RSA Good Work Guild online event where Uh, members, fellows, I beg your pardon, of the RSA were chatting about um, the future of work and future good work and Barry and I um, engaged in a conversation online and then went offline and have been chatting um, enthusiastically ever since about what the future of work could look like. So let me introduce him. Barry is the Managing Director of Work Extraordinary a boutique organisational design and transformation consultancy, helping business leaders design highly adaptive and participative organisations. He's a change maker, facilitator, consultant and coach, and he works with leadership teams to question and challenge the status quo and disrupt conventional thinking and introduce new approaches within organisations. So Barry, welcome to our podcast. Fantastic, thank you, Cat and Dom
1: and Jen. Great to be with you, and uh, thank you for that really warm introduction. Uh, really, really good to join you today.
0: I feel I feel like every single one of our conversations is so vibrant and dynamic, and I know that when we've um, followed up with emails to one another afterwards, we kind of use that little emoji, you know, with the head exploding, because because we're talking about so much uh, potential and opportunity. But um, I guess. to 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 introduce the topic to the audience today um we we know work is changing we've been living through that for the last 22 23 months now Mm. and um i guess you know against that backdrop of how we work there's a whole bunch of other things that are changing and so to kick this conversation off Barry. Um, My question to you would be, how do you perceive work and conventional career pathways to be changing in the 2020s? Great. So um, uh,
1: thanks, Kat. And yeah, I mean, I think your point around uh, how our conversations go off at all kinds of different tangents we uh, we do cover a lot of ground a lot of territory when we can kind of get together so uh uh today let, let's uh, uh, my challenge is to make sure i could uh, really stay on topic with you uh, as we could uh, we go through this but i think that that real kind of topic for me around the um, how work and conventional career pathways are, are changing um, you know if you can kind of look at historically how um how work has happened, and I, I suppose some of the, you know, um, things like kind of concepts like psychological contract and so on, which kind of really kind of start to kind of take ground and, and develop from the 1960s onwards. That was really very much based in a time when the kind of the world of work and our expectations of work were pretty stable, were pretty predictable. Um, you know, there wasn't the same kind of pace of change. There wasn't the same expectation of... Um, uh, that that things would be changing and 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 adapting constantly so um world of work and and the way organizations operated tended to be in a very kind of stable predictable type of way and of course uh, what we have seen uh over um you know since that time and moving forward you know you've you've had uh, huge trends around globalization uh, digitalization uh, the kind of uh, the, the increased role of technology and how that has radically shifted and changed the way that that people are working and operating, and that the the pace of that is moving at such an exponential rate, you know, it, it constantly kind of uh, increasing pace and gathering pace, that actually the this this idea of of uh, some of the 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 typical practices around work are just so hugely outdated uh, and people's expectations of work and career and career pathway and their their expectations of, of uh, what that relationship with their work is going to look like has just radically changed uh, and transformed. And I think the, um, you know, if, if we think about how many of the fundamental assumptions around how and when we work, you know, if you think about... Um, Uh, So for instance, the the whole principle of working nine to five, five days a week, that was very much rooted, you know, I think it was uh, originated by Ford in some of the 1920s, 1926. So that was very much uh, a a pattern of work and way of working that was set and predicated in a time, you know, for assembly workers in a particular, who had to be all in one location in one particular space uh, for a particular period of work. And of course, you know, our, our, uh, the, the percentage of, of GDP, uh, GDP that, is now, uh, that is now rooted in service industry as opposed to kind of manufacturing environments has radically changed. So as a result, uh, the way that knowledge workers need to operate, the way that different sectors need to operate doesn't need to be predicated in these really old, outdated assumptions and patterns of how we work and the way we work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is such a lot to unpick there, and I think you know, we we'd be there, wouldn't we? A, a whole podcast on its own as to why why work's changed um, to the extent that it has. Sorry, Dom, I totally cut across you there. What were you going to say? No,
2: don't worry, don't worry at all.
0: Um, I, I was
2: just interested because I've got three daughters of late teens, early twenties. All I'm trying to encourage them out into the world of work, mm. and not always successfully. Um, and, uh-huh. and when we talk about this whole idea about um, uh, career customization and the yeah. new world, etc. Well, what do we mean by that? I, I've spoken about career customization, mass career customization. What does actually that mean, Barry? And, and I guess what does it mean for my daughters and people like them?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I, th- I think you know go, the, the context that we've talked about about how the world of work has rad- radically changed. I think what people have increasingly started to look at as well, you know, um, uh, for the. the there's either the option of if you know or, or previously there was this option of if we're going to if we're going to uh do something very very different, we choose a very different career path we go out on our own we do something and we kind of choose our own way and we carve our own path and what that is ultimately meant for particularly a lot of larger organizations and corporates and um uh, is that um, they're not necessarily able to keep a pace, or they historically haven't been able to keep a pace with with the the employee proposition in the same way, because um, they've they've had so many constraints and restrictions on the way that they work and the and the way that um, their expectations of how people are going to work. Um, and so, what uh, kind of mass career customization really talks about is that. Um, increasingly organizations are really recognizing that in order to retain talent, to keep talent and to uh, to engage and get the best out of talent within their organizations, and actually we kind of really need to kind of throw a lot of these really old assumptions and, and uh, uh, ways of thinking about what work looks like. I really kind of just throw that on its head. Um, and, you know, I suppose you could say, uh, you know, until COVID, There is a sort of widespread... Tolerance is probably the best word to use for it, uh, for um, for allowing a degree of flexibility within the way that people work. And that was, you know, whether it was a a little bit about a little bit of flexibility about times, so whether people came in a little bit earlier and finished a bit bit, uh, bit earlier, or whether people maybe had like one day a week where they could work from home. So until COVID, that that kind of tolerance, um, there was a toleration for allowing that degree of flexibility. What COVID has really done is it's probably been one of the workplaces' greatest experiments, uh, certainly in the kind of uh, in our in our most recent history, because what we have been able to do is suddenly start to realise that we you know people people went from uh, uh, their kind of. Pretty standard working practices into being entirely remote uh, within a, a very very short time frame, and of course you know we have to recognise that within that there were there are winners and losers, right? So so people who are, are working typically in a kind of more of a kind of office environment suddenly they found huge amounts of flexibility in the way that they were defining uh their their work and and the way that they were working whereas of course those who are more dependent on regular footfall and, and people coming through uh so whether that's in kind of hospitality or retail or th- those types of environments they suddenly were, were experiencing uh you know a very very different experience and i think uh how that continues to play out um i think is going to be uh really really fascinating for us to think about how do we redesign and enable uh, environments where 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 people can still um be be uh fully operational and fully functioning and fully contributing, uh, whilst that there's kind of some shifts in the dynamics of that. But but when we talk about kind of career customization, I think we're really getting into these looking at the levers of flexibility, which is around the kind of time and place. Uh, and I suppose recognizing around uh, what are the different, you know, so for instance, if we're gonna be working uh, from home uh, or, or kind of this hybrid space of home versus office? What are the different types of things that we're going to be looking to do uh, when we're kind of working uh, at home and you know uh, i think enabling people to get into really deep work and and do some of that kind of deep creative thinking and creative work that is needed uh, that absolutely is a kind of becomes a decision factor for people when they're thinking about home versus office but also what are the what are the points at which we can come together and work together so you've got this dynamic of Of place but then this dynamic of time and and then the kind of the third dynamic is around just the kind of the ways of working and the the way that we choose to work and technology you know technology has enabled kind of individualization and in in so many other areas so uh, you know marketing for instance uh, and so on but technology is then also enabling us to really individualize and customize the way that we work, the time, the place, the how, and so on. And so this whole idea of mass career customization, Dom, going back to your kind of three daughters, is that um, they are going to have significantly more autonomy in choosing what that work experience in their career is going to to look like, uh, and the experiences that they gather along the way will be really um, uh, will be helping them to enrich that. And particularly, um, you know, that the the when you think about the, you know, that you constantly hear the kind of percentages of jobs that that uh, won't exist in the future that that, that currently do or that that uh, we don't even know about yet that are going to emerge. All of that that um, that idea about kind of career then becomes rather than the sort of job for life or st- or stable career progression and pathway actually becomes far more uh, releasing and, and uh, fluid. Um, and it comes down to the individual's ability to really kind of uh, go where the motivation is, learn and adapt and take on new skills and, and develop and grow uh, throughout that, how that career p- pans out. Does that help to kind of make make sense to you, Dom, from from the point of view of?
2: Uh, I mean, but let, let your me just
1: it, Yeah, sure.
2: It makes very good sense, thanks, Brian. And, and I, I'd just like to i would probe it a bit further, if I may, mm. um, because you said about the, the importance of autonomy, and I think that's something which people starting out in their careers definitely need to do, is start to uh, understand they've got to develop their own skills and they've got to um, find their own opportunities. Um, but what would be the key things that you'd say to someone in starting out in their career that they should equip themselves with so they can navigate this new world? What are the yeah. two or three key things?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a great question, Dom. And I think the... Um, I think that the first, first step that we always take when we're working with, with individuals and, and organizations is really helping people to, to get attuned to and get really close to understanding who they are and what strengths they bring to the table. And, um, and that might sound quite a kind of simplistic piece of advice to begin with, but actually, and um, the, the, I, I suppose the number of people that we work with who just, who don't necessarily have that level of of insight into their own personal strengths and and uh, kind of uh, real kind of core unique um, uh, abilities that they bring to the table. I think I think that's a really kind of core aspect to, to first of all uh, bring into into that. Uh, and that therefore means kind of spending some real time in, in retrospection and reflection about what are the things that I have been able to, you know, that I've been able to do extremely well, what are the things that I feel find challenging or I find draining, uh, and then really kind of focusing in on what what, what energises me, what excites me, because uh, being able to, to bring those strengths to the fore um, uh, is, is absolutely critical to that, and in a world where um, uh, we are able to to customise our careers and essentially go where the energy uh, takes us, or, or, or play to our strengths, actually being really attuned to what those strengths are, uh, and and being able to adapt the opportunity that we're going after, I think is a kind of first first major key point. I think the second one then is about. Um, Constantly bringing an attitude of curiosity and learning, um, so um, you know the, the the skills and the capabilities that we that we uh, learn or that that, that we. Um, uh, absorbed during our kind of uh, our education and our, and university or, or, or whichever path we end up taking and um, they're not necessarily going to be the skills and capabilities that we're going to need in a five or ten years time so cons- uh, that kind of constant exploration of what else can I learn what else can I uh, better understand and really could kind have, of, um, and and that kind of constant search for for new new learning and, and being curious, I think is a is a second thing that I would say, and and then I think the third one would be around, and um, it's about the kind of the relationships and the connections, because um, as as we um, uh, as we really kind of adapt and evolve and and um, look at further opportunities. The more that we are connected into different people, so not just people who are very similar to us, but actually a really diverse, rich um, uh, breadth of of um, uh, connections and, and community. That is how we we really kind of do uh, uh, build those relationships and, and seek to kind of. Uh, test out opportunities and then kind of uh, follow up on them. And I think that opens up all kinds of different opportunities to follow different paths that are not necessarily immediately apparent when you could kind of first, first kind of stepping out into the world. So there would be the three main things that I would, I would say, focus in on that to, to really help you to be on the front foot for uh, kind of a world where mass career customization is, is uh, very prevalent.
2: Barry, that's brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to put those three things on my family WhatsApp this evening.
3: <laughs> Marvelous. I look forward I to it. I want to hear the responses, don for that family <laughs> WhatsApp group yeah. when you put that out. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I, t- thank you so much, Barry, for that kind of ex- explanation of career customization in the future and. I think, as you were talking, there was thinking about it from an internal communication, and, and you know our listeners and, and what they're going through. There's there's so many challenges, but there is brightness. I think mm. at the end of it, that it strikes me in terms of what you're talking about. Um, but I think one of the things that I've sort of jotted down, I think that we're in kind of a, a challenging transitional period mm. because, you know, like we, like Dom's talking about his three new daughters and uh, three, new, three daughters, they're not new, you've had them a while, Dom, I believe. <laughs> um, they're the, you know, three daughters and, and entering them into the career case and, and things like that. But And that's for those generations that are coming through. But if you think of the workplace right now, then we still have many people that have come to work from different, perspectives or, or old habits or different expectations. You know, I, I've i been working for a few decades, I shall say. Um, and I guess I've had to work really hard at kind of going, actually, nine to, you don't have to be nine to five. You can be individualistic. You can allow that to happen. But I think that there is, do you think there's going to be, I guess, the future organizations whilst we get to the future organization? I feel like there might be some challenges to bring that sense of alignment and fairness, I think is going to be a real issue in terms of, well, this is what the expectations of those are coming in, but I expect them to be over here. And how do we align all that different, well, I've got my traditional career, but I want my customized career. And how do we bring all that into play? And then also, I feel like when you're talking about all those things, and I agree absolutely on reflection, continuous learning, relationships and connections. Absolutely. So how does, I guess, internal communication, and I don't mean that by broadcast, I mean that by in the sense of how we engender the right environment to allow that to, to play through, because I feel like in future organisations, we're going to need a new comms framework or a new enabler to make all of that work in a way that feels fair but also i guess that that bumpy ride whilst we we get to this kind of bright new world so i guess my question to you is with all that in mind in that transition how do what do you think will be the stumbling blocks whilst we get there and what do you think that future organization will look like
1: great question jen and i think um uh just the um uh, I, I suppose there's a couple of things in there for me around the kind of uh, key points you've raised. Because one is, the, so you've, you've kind of talked there about the kind of the, that sense of fairness, uh, which I think is a really important aspect. You've then talked also about the kind of stumbling blocks as we kind of start to get towards uh, this what this future organisation might look like. So I think there's kind of probably three areas there just to kind of cover. Um, uh, uh, to make sure I kind of really kind of get into talking about that. So I think first of all, that kind of sense of fairness, I think is a really important aspect. Um, And you are absolutely right that there are, you know, we are in this transition phase and we, you know, you're constantly, you're always in that constant flux of, of, New generations, new talent, new expectations coming in, whilst kind of, there's an established um, established set of thinking and pattern of thinking, and of course, people who ha- who are currently in the workplace and have been operating within that existing system and an existing way of operating, and you know, have actually. Uh, worked in that system and been successful through that system so actually um uh, in many ways you're looking to those people to help change the system that they have actually worked through and worked up in and worked uh, and you know got to to really to to leadership roles within that that system but actually looking for them to to then also help to change and adapt that system into a new way of of being so and um, i think that the one of the things around that kind of that sense of fairness, I think that, you know, the more, um, and particularly from a, how we're communicating about it, I think the more open that we are about... Um, what is going on and why that is and being really open about some of the dilemmas and some of the issues around um, uh, fairness and how people might perceive that, that transparency and that open dialogue. And I think the the role that internal communications can play in helping to facilitate and enable that conversation and that dialogue is really critical to beginning to, to help overcome, uh, misperceptions around um you know sense of fairness or sense of you know uh, i've done this and i've i've achieved all this but why are they suddenly getting something that i had to work really hard to get you know that all of those types of issues have really got to be surfaced and and openly talked about in a really open transparent way Uh, and i think internal comms is is brilliantly positioned to really help to facilitate and lead and enable that conversation um the the stumbling blocks really i think are going to be um uh around the uh you know some of those things that we've already touched on around the the um this sense of uh you know i suppose status and ego for for uh some people as we kind of start to adapt and think about organizations operating in more fluid ways um, you know some of the kind of traditional um uh, uh I suppose trappings that come with, uh, you know, uh, where, uh, leaders are looking to, to lead and own and, and, you know, empire build to a degree within, so within their organizations and some of the kind of trappings of status and ego that come with that. So really, um, helping to move beyond that into a kind of more inclusive and participative, um, way of being and way of organizing. And, um, and I think the, um, I suppose it, it's looking for where are the role models uh, for uh, of organisations that have been on this journey and had and have helped to create uh, a kind of more open, inclusive fabric uh, of being. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, the work that that we do is really helping to bring some of those examples and stories and and kind of narratives to life for our clients, so that they can begin to explore that there is a potential new way of of being there's a new way of of organizing and and of of enabling organizations to happen and therefore ways of of, to work and you know that there's some really brilliant examples out there of different organizations that are experimenting around the edges with with some of these things you know whether it's you know spotify models that have um kind of uh, Created lots of different kind of squads and tribes and chapters and so on. Um, the higher the kind of Chinese manufacturing organization that has been on this really fascinating journey, uh, actually over, um, somewhere in the regional kind of last 40 years of constant adaptation from what was a very command and control type of organization set up into what is now, um, best described really is this sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, their, their philosophy of that is called high. Uh, but uh, but underpinning all of that, I mean, they've got, what, 80,000 employees, but within that, about 4,000 different micro-enterprises. They're all operating in this really um, entrepreneurial ecosystem type of way of working. Um, and, um, you know, it's bringing these examples to to, um, to the table to really help people start to, to experiment with what are the underlying assumptions that we need to be thinking about and questioning and challenging. And I was working with a, a client a, a few weeks ago, uh, and they're just starting to talk about and surface those assumptions that we have in our minds around what is leadership what do we actually mean by leadership uh, what you know what are um, uh, what is the role of uh, employee voice within our organization uh, how do we enable greater levels of participation and really starting to to question some of those underlying assumptions as really um, uh, really helps to kind of open up the 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 uh i suppose the the frame of uh, or the perspective that that leaders are are focusing on their organization from and then start to enable a kind of greater sense of experimentation and and actually uh, if we get to a point where uh, an organisation is willing to experiment and to try something, and then say, "Actually, that doesn't work." We 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 learn from that. We move on. That kind of process of experimentation, testing, uh, failing, and learning from failure is a huge part of what makes organisations far more open to this kind of uh, fluid and, and adaptive way of of being. And um, and I genuinely think that the the way forward for organisations in terms of what the organisations look like in the future is very much that kind of network of teams, um, you know, far more fluid, far more adaptive. I mean, if you ask ask anyone at the moment to draw out uh, a kind of a picture of what their organisation looks like, Nine times out of ten, you will end up with people drawing some type of hierarchy. They'll draw, uh, you know, one or two people at the top. Then there'll be the kind of next layer down, and then the next layer down. And it all—they all have these kind of boxes around people, and then these lines that are kind of meant to represent the reporting lines and so on. And this idea that we ha- we are stuck in this hierarchical system with boxes around us, containing and compressing and restricting us, And um, I think we need to kind of fundamentally question and challenge the assumptions that, um, of, of actually how we even think about, think about visualising that in order to enable uh, our, our organisations and ways of working to be far more fluid and adaptive and open. I think I've covered off the three the three topics that you you raised, Jen. You but literally, you, you know,
3: you know, no, you haven't, Barry. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Thank you. And, and you've actually
0: answered a question that I was going to ask around um, achieving optimal organisational agility. So for me, what I have heard you say, Barry, is that actually the propensity to become organisationally agile actually rests with the leaders, doesn't it? It rests with the mindset of the leaders. So I guess a sort of slight flip to the question that I wanted to ask was, you know, what if you're leading a business today, what's the number one thing that you need to do as a leader to enable your organisation to embrace agility? How do you need to up your own game as a leader? What one thing do you need to be tapping into, do you feel?
1: Okay, great. Uh,
0: Great question, Kat. And
1: um, forgive me if I kind of jumped ahead and started uh, answering future questions, but um, I think, yeah, the. The
0: point
1: that you've pulled the point that you've pulled out there about it starting with the leaders so um y- yes I-, I would actually say yes and no in some respects because um, uh, y- I my my preference and my tendency would always be to to start to work with the leaders because the leaders help to to prepare uh, the tone and the culture and the acceptance and the environment for this um however <clears throat> Uh, you know particularly if there are if individuals or, or people um, your listeners who are kind of uh, sat there kind of going well actually our leadership team's not going to buy into this but I would like to try and do some type of experiment within my kind of in my immediate team that is absolutely feasible it's absolutely possible to to do an, an experiment within a within a smaller part of an organization and people then start to kind of go oh, gosh look at what they're doing that's really fascinating I want to be a have a bit of that, and to be part of that, and to, and to have a little bit of that going on in my my part of the the organisation. So it absolutely can happen that way, um, but certainly from from experience, I think the the areas where we have seen um, uh, m- more buy-in and more openness to it is when it has um, has. Uh, been role modeled and, uh, and opened up from a kind of leadership perspective. Um, and I think to, to answer your question around what are the kind of, the, the one thing that leaders can really uh, think about doing, it's about the, I suppose, um, I, I kind of talk about this sort of illusion of control. Uh, and that kind of leaders uh, often feel, you know, they, they want to kind of hold on to this idea that they're in control and they, they've got complete control over um, uh, what is going on within their organisations. Well, actually, that is only really an elite illusion of control uh, because, um, you know, uh, th- things do not just happen just because you as, as the leader have, have decided it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. Um it's the same with change. Change doesn't happen just because the leader suddenly goes, "Right, we are going to change." Change is actually something that is happening constantly on an ongoing, daily basis within the organisation. And um, kind of describe it as polycentric change, as opposed to this sort of monocentric or just coming from the centre change. We're all constantly adapting and evolving, and um, and responding to the immediate situations and pressures and challenges and opportunities that are presenting themselves to us uh, on a kind of daily basis or an hourly basis at some sometimes so actually um, for for leaders to really start to help to enable this within their organizations is, it's first of all about kind of starting to give up this illusion of control and um, you know you're not you're not entirely in control of a, absolutely everything that is said or happens or, or people think within the organization actually people have got their own kind of um their own desires and wishes and and outcomes they're trying to drive themselves so actually give up that illusion of control and really kind of think about how do we start to to um really kind of rebuild trust uh, so trust is a is a big big thing uh it, certainly in some of the kind of um organizations that we're working with where where, where there are uh, some of these kind of legacy um legacy uh mistrust issues that arise in this sort of quite hierarchical way of operating, when you start to kind of uh, free up that and and give up that, then really kind of re-establishing trust and making sure that, that people are bought into and understand what it is you're trying to achieve Again, I think the the role for internal comms here and really starting to help uh, reinforce and build that trust uh, and, and and communicate what this is about uh, is really, really, uh, really important and really critical. But then also, I think um, uh, the other thing that I uh, I do hear a lot from leaders that I talk to is that they kind of fear that if they start to go to uh you know if they've been in kind of quite a uh, hierarchical command control type of environment, and they start to kind of suddenly just step back from that and kind of just free things up. They will kind of land in some kind of uh, mad chaos and mayhem. So, um, so it's it's really about kind of doing that in a way that that, that um, exploring what are the boundaries, what are the what are the kind of controls that we still need to have in place as an organisation uh, to really kind of make sure that we are still delivering what we expect to to our clients uh, and our customers, that we're delivering quality work, that we're we're doing the best that we possibly can. So it's really kind of exploring those boundaries in different ways. And, and that's where a lot of the work that, that we do is helping leaders to understand as we start to shift culturally and shift the dynamics of, of the, our ways of working, how do we kind of start to redefine boundaries? How do we do that in a way where our teams and our people are telling us what boundaries they need and they feel safe psychologically safe to come up and speak to us and talk to us about what those boundaries need to look like for them um, and that's that's the place that we spend a lot of time working uh, in order to help help that shift towards a greater kind of organizational agility
2: Barry, we've, we've- unfortunately we need to come into land so it'd be great to pull together some of the points you've made about internal communicators because obviously that's the the majority audience for, for the mm. podcast and you've, you've talked about establishing this dialogue which i think is a fantastic point to really get people to talk about what all this means and, and i guess also to be a bit vulnerable about stuff and say i feel uncomfortable about this and be able to talk that through um you, you've talked about helping people establish networks so they can replace traditional hierarchical ways of communicating with um, more fluid ways of communicating, and you've talked about this building of trust. But I guess if an internal communicator listen to this thinking, this sounds very exciting, but it also sounds quite concerning, because future organisations are going to be always changing and always moving around and being different. So what advice would you give internal communicators about what they can do uh, to help organisations and to make sure that there's some sort of continuity as, as organisations change, what what can internal communicators do? How can they make themselves useful? Sorry, there's lots of questions in there.
1: <laughs> there are lots of questions in there, Dom, but and I'll try to try to keep a, a clear focus on uh, answering those. I think the, um, I mean, I th- certainly I think that first piece around just the that sense of constant change and adaptation, um, you know. uh, during change communication is absolutely critical and so important and i think uh traditionally where we would have come from is that um, a place where change was kind of led uh, from the top and therefore change communications were very much thinking about kind of that kind of top-down cascade and how we were managing that in a controlled way Uh, where we go to a point where it is about this sort of constant change and adaptation is then and therefore I think the role that internal communications can play is about how we and continually reassure and, and provide a degree of of certainty around and 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 that sense of feeling it's okay with constant adaptation, and I think the the importance of storytelling within that, and helping people to to share and uh, and tell their story, and being a kind of real enabler of that, and facilitating that type of um, uh, kind of constant change communications. Uh, that absolutely is is incredibly important, and I think internal communications can really help to to shift that away from uh, what is more traditionally seen as a kind of top-down type of approach of communication to actually tapping into all kinds of stories from all different types of, of the organization, because the more that we start to kind of give a platform and build that out from... A, from all kinds of corners of the organisation, the more we start to kind of break down what might be seen as traditional hierarchies, traditional silos and traditional boundaries to actually something that's far more fluid and open and really enables that um, sense of community and participation. And I think that the role, the importance of, of community and building that sense of community of we're all in this together and we're all working on this together and and we're we're all participating and everyone has a voice and that voice doesn't necessarily need to be exactly on the same page at every time. It's okay that there are differences of opinion and there's different experiences and different perspectives because Mm -hmm. it's the diversity of voice and the diversity of thought and perspective that is actually going to make us far stronger and able to learn and adapt and grow to the challenges that we are facing. Um, so I, 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 uh, does, that, does that cover and, and hit the kind of key points I think you were asking from your questions?
2: It does. I do, I'd say what I've taken, lots of things I've taken from and the whole yeah. conversation. But I think for a communicator, it's saying, look, how can we start to facilitate conversation? How can we get people from different mm. parts of the organisation, recognising they've got a story worth telling, and then give them the the ways and means by which they can share those stories. I think that's that's a really yeah. crucial point, uh, and a, and really signifies a whole shift for internal comms. So, look, Great. Barry, thank you very much indeed, and not least, thank you for the careers v- advice from my daughters. I'll report <laughs> back on that. But also, thanks for everything else and taking part in the in the podcast. <laughs> thank You're you very good. much.
1: Thank you. All. Thank you, Barry.
3: That was brilliant. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode has been brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and was hosted by myself, Jen Sprell, Kat Barnard and Dominic Walters. This episode was produced by Jessica Williams and Shabit Luogonpalu. And if you've enjoyed this episode today, we'd be enormously grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on the channel you choose to tune in. It really helps others to know that we're here. We'll tune in and hopefully see you next time.